Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, though in unusual proportions. The economist Josh Mason will talk about the Green New Deal and its weak descendant, the Inflation Reduction Act. And Jen Duggan will talk about a lawsuit against the EPA to get it to enforce the Clean Water Act, which it hasn't been doing properly for decades. Before that, I want to highlight a phrase tweeted by SpaceX, Elon Musk's outfit, when their rocket blew up minutes after takeoff. According to SpaceX, it didn't actually blow up. There was a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. This is one of the best phrases introduced into the language since Don DeLillo's airborne toxic event. And now on to a big question. Can we tackle the climate crisis without the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism? The Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, passed in August 2022, is an enormous bill whose inflation-fighting capacities may be exaggerated, but which represents the largest climate-related policy the U.S. has ever embraced. Though clearly inspired by the Green New Deal, it's much weaker than that original. But it's still big. It would raise revenues by increasing some business taxes and expanding the IRS's enforcement powers and spend almost $400 billion on climate and clean energy measures. Tax incentives in the bill are likely to encourage further climate-related investments by a multiple of that $400 billion. A couple of weeks ago, a sociologist named Dylan Riley, an occasional collaborator with the historian Robert Brenner, had a post on Sidecar, the blog sponsored by New Left Review, asserting that the answer to my opening question, can we address the climate crisis without the overthrow of capitalism, is an unambiguous no. As he put it, the commanding heights of the economy in this period finance must be seized at once. That's the end of the quote. No other option is possible. Riley is far from alone in this position. Even though the American left is stronger than it was a decade or three ago, the possibilities of this happening soon seem rather limited. So should we just give up on life on Earth? My next guest, Josh Mason, wrote a response to Riley's article on the Jacobin Magazine website. Josh is far more hopeful about the IRA and the possibilities emerging from it. He's a professor of economics at John Jay College, part of the City University of New York. Josh Mason. Dylan Riley's post uh, a couple of weeks ago on New Left Review's sidecar blog has gotten a lot of attention in my little corner of the world for several reasons. One of them is uh, his claim that the uh, story of Silicon Valley Bank versus dramatic expansion and its failure uh, represents the lack of investment opportunities for capital today. What do you make of that argument? I don't think certainly Silicon Valley Bank is a very um, good piece of evidence for that argument because what he says is, look, they're holding all of these deposits from all of these um, tech firms. And then on the, on the other side, you know, on their asset side, they're just holding a bunch of treasury bonds. So clearly they don't, they couldn't find anything better to do with their funds. But that's, I don't think it's the right way to look at it. It's these firms that had their deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were, were businesses that had received investment funds from venture capitalists. They were not idle financial balances looking for an outlet. They were money that had already been invested in something that somebody thought was going to be a profitable enterprise. Now, whether these things were actually ever going to make money or whether they were going to do anything socially useful is something we can certainly debate. But it doesn't reflect a lack of outlets that seemed promising to to venture capitalists. And one of the things that's happened in the U.S. economy is a lot of the financing of real businesses has shifted away from banks and towards other types of institutional investors like obviously in the tech sector, uh, specialized venture capital funds. And that's, that's certainly an interesting development, but it doesn't really tell us anything about the larger scope for, for, for productive investment in the economy. There are obviously cases one can make um, for a, a sort of decline in investment, certainly relative to, to the profitability of a lot of businesses. But I, I don't think Silicon Valley Bank in particular really, really is a useful piece of evidence to, to, to support that case. Now, he jumps from that analysis to the conclusion that the only thing we can do is to nationalize the commanding heights of the economy, which, uh, as attractive as that may be, um, seems both an enormous leap politically and economically. But his point seems to be uh, to make the Green New Deal seem economically unwise or even impossible. We're suffering for so much overcapacity, and this would only make it worse. What do you think of that? 
Well, I think we have to take a step back here. You know, the, the context of this whole debate is, is um, first, this huge expansion, although largely reversed, but, but a temporary expansion in public spending and the safety net under COVID, and then sort of overlapping with this, this, this wave of interest in the Green New Deal and more broadly in industrial policy. Now, some of this is obviously a specific response to the pandemic, but a lot of it comes out of the recognition of the need for rapidly decarbonizing the economy and the need for a bigger role of the public sector in doing that. And then, of course, it also comes from more problematic places, this hostility to China and broader sort of economic nationalism. But certainly within the, the Biden administration and more broadly in kind of mainstream liberal democratic circles, you can see an openness for a much greater public role in what were traditionally considered private decisions about the organization of production, the direction of investment. The people within the administration who are talking this way are not in any imaginable sense of the word socialist. But the question is, is there is there space for a socialist program here? Is there space to advance a kind of socialist politics in a setting in which we are at least talking about a much bigger role for the, the state in the sort of direction of investment and organization of production? This seems qualitatively different from Obama and Clinton-style democratic economic policy. Does it seem like we're Absolutely. I think absolutely. And I think, frankly, that's, you know, why there's been such ferocious hostility to the Biden administration from sort of the, the some of the icons of, of Obama-Clinton era economic policy, like Larry Summers and Jason Furman, is because it is in many ways a rejection of the, the kind of consensus that they embody. In what sense? Could you just bring out some of those points? Well, I think there was a very clear view in, in, in those administrations that there was a very limited scope of activities that were appropriate for the public sector to take on. In general, it was entirely desirable and appropriate for pretty much every important decision about investment, productive activity to be made by the private sector, by the criteria of private profit, by, by markets, as we say. And that was that was almost um, unquestioned. You know, I was in a meeting with Jason Furman, um, I don't know when it was, maybe 2017, 18, I don't know, somewhere in there. And he said, um, the only question I have about climate change is whether a carbon tax is 80% of the solution or 100% of the solution. <laughs> so the notion is there's absolutely no role for the state to be out there financing stuff, doing stuff directly, directing investment in any sort of affirmative way. You set a price and markets are going to do the rest of the, of the work. And that, that wasn't just about climate, but it was about a lot of policy areas. You know, you really just, you need to pull back from the state. You know, the era of big government is over. Certainly, people in the Biden administration do not talk that way. And in some important respects, you know, they, they've really actually put forward a program that's quite in opposition to that. There is a big, again, some of this COVID specific, but a huge expansion in, in public spending and in social spending in particular. And also people like Yellen talking much more overtly about we actually need to have a role for the public sector in deciding where investment is going to go, what industries are going to grow and so on. And that's just not, I think, a language that you ever heard from um, those previous Democratic administrations. Let's go back to the uh, this whole overcapacity argument that uh, Riley et al. are using to uh, criticize uh, the Green New Deal and the IRA and such. Uh, what's wrong with that in your view? The argument they're making is that even if a real industrial policy program could actually be enacted and carried out, and I think there are actually real obstacles to doing that that we should talk about because it's not like the alternative to sort of Riley view is Let's just do it. There are, there are actual obstacles. But let's say, you know, hypothetically, we could overcome those obstacles and actually have a big rise in, in, in all sorts of green investment in the United States. The notion is because we have this, this sort of chronic situation of global overcapacity, whatever additional stimulus that gave to the U.S. economy, whatever additional employment created in the U.S. economy would just sort of be subtracted one for one from growth and employment elsewhere in the world. And, um, if other countries, you know, try to follow the same sort of policy, of course, that will then reverse whatever benefits the U.S. gets from it. That effectively, in their story, um, and it's it's hard to find, I, I was looking again through some of Brenner's older writings, it's hard to find him saying this in exactly so many words, but the implicit logic repeatedly is that there is a fixed pool of demand to be divvied up among the various countries of the world. If one country, for whatever reason, successfully, you know, stimulates investment or production, um, that's just going to come at the expense of, of somewhere else. I mean, this, this sort of zero-sum, well, he certainly uses the zero-sum language in many places. And the notion, therefore, that any the best you can hope for from any kind of industrial policy or stimulus program in the United States is just a sort of benefit to the U.S. at the expense of somewhere else in the world in, the, in, this, in this sort of zero-sum competition for market share. Just dealing with the overcapacity question, it's hard to work out the math in this precisely. But uh, 
some of this is a matter of replacement. We're supposed to replace the old dirty old technology with new clean technology. So uh, we don't know what the net effect on capacity would be, but it's not like it's going to increase capacity uh, just in proportion to the uh, the level of investment. That's right. And the same goes for electrifying a lot of other parts of the economy, where it's about replacing existing carbon intensive technologies with, with, with other new ones. And you don't necessarily re- increase the aggregate capacity to produce stuff in the world. You're just you're just accelerating the replacement of these old things. And in the short term, of course, what you're doing is boosting demand. And this is this is where the, the sort of Brenner Riley article uh, argument gets gets a little bit odd because the flip side of overcapacity is is obviously insufficient demand. Overcapacity relative to what? Overcapacity relative to the market for whatever you're producing. And so logically a, a crisis of overcapacity should also be described as a crisis of insufficient demand. And occasionally you do see Brenner using that kind of language. But in that case, one would think any sort of program that is going to boost demand, that is going to boost spending and boost incomes, and certainly any sort of Green New Deal or accelerated decarbonization type program is going to do that in the short run, uh, ought to then help relieve whatever overcapacity there is by, by increasing the flow of spending out there. But you'd never hear Brenner or Riley or other people, you know, the sort of new left review people who kind of follow this line, acknowledging that. In fact, they, they present this global capacity of overcapacity very explicitly as a reason why any sort of fiscal program is doomed, is hopeless. To me, it's, it's really quite striking how similar the language that you hear from, from these people on the left and from somebody like Larry Summers, that in this, in this world where we've got this growth is, is impossible now, and we can't accomplish anything by increased spending except higher inflation. But if you really think that your problem is there's too much capacity for the level of demand, logically, you would think that raising the level of demand would be one way uh, out of that box. The idea of underconsumption, overinvestment, overcapacity, this has a very long history uh, in economics. Could you just review some of that history, where the intellectual uh, evolution of it? In the sort of pre-World War I period where you have people like Hobson, who is not a Marxist, Lenin, who followed him somewhat closely, and, and Rosa Luxemburg, you know, talking about how the competition for colonies and markets, the sort of source of inter-imperialist rivalry, was the, the, the chronic inadequacy of domestic consumption to um, provide sufficient markets to, to realize the surplus generated by industry in, in the more advanced countries. And so there was this intense competition for markets in the rest of the world as a, a sort of outlet for the goods they produced, but because of you know low wages, they couldn't consume at home. So that was, you know, became an argument for not necessarily, you know, an ongoing economic crisis, but the political problem of, uh, of, of competition for markets that then leads into imperialist rivalry and eventually war. There's another tradition that I think is, is less well known, but is sort of an interesting alternative way of ending up at a similar place, which is from the sort of first generation of the American economics uh, profession, generally politically conservative people, but interesting thinkers who, who were really focused on the problem of railroads and where you have a problem that if you have a single railroads, you know, that the, the first sort of massive capital intensive industry in the U.S. with huge amounts of completely specialized fixed capital, huge amount of labor and money to build a rail line. After that, that rail line is sitting there. It cannot go anywhere else, but it's relatively cheap to run trains over it once it's there. So if you have one rail line serving a route, they can charge extremely high prices relative to the costs and and be very profitable. If you have two rail lines running on similar routes, then uh, they'll compete their prices down to the marginal cost of serving that route, which is quite low. It's not enough to recover the fixed costs of building the rail line in the first place. And so they compete each other into bankruptcy. Whoever has deeper financial resources eventually emerges and buys out the loser. But you have these sort of waves of monopoly pricing, followed by cutthroat competition and bankruptcy. And and so this, this suggested to them that in a, in a world of fixed capital, high fixed costs, specialized fixed capital, competition is not is not going to work. This sounds like the early days of airline deregulation. That's right. It's a dynamic you can see in a lot of industries. Um, and so that leads you to think, you know, you can have a problem of cutthroat competition. And maybe, for instance, you could talk about globalization of, of the auto industry leading to a wave of something like this or in steel, where you had a period where, you know, producers were sort of competing prices down to a point where they couldn't recover their fixed costs and whoever had the sort of deeper pockets survived and the others went went bankrupt. Hyman Minsky says somewhere, you know, capitalism does not work well in a, in a world with, with capital goods, which is, is kind of true. You know, market pricing sort of assumes you have a world where marginal costs are, are kind of a good guide to the overall costs of production. But when you have fixed or, or declining marginal costs and big specialized fixed capital goods that have to be financed, that's, that's really not true. And you have these dynamics where you can have cutthroat competition and, and waves of bankruptcies and, and even industries that aren't viable, even though they would, they would in principle be able to produce um, goods at a lower cost than the, the price people will pay for them because of this dynamic. 
all of these are real problems, but they tend to play out in terms of cycles and instability. It's, it's hard in that. It, it's certainly, I think, an intellectual root of the sort of Brenner argument. He talks a lot about the importance of specialized, long-lived fixed capital goods, just like the, the railroad economists did. But it's much easier to turn that into a story about instability and periodic crises than a sort of endless stagnation, which is what um, Brenner wants to make it into. I'm speaking with the economist Josh Mason. Sometimes I hear arguments like this. It's like capitalism can't tie its shoes in the morning, much less come to dominate the world over the course of eight centuries. Yeah, I think this is something that people lose sight of. You know, we this is this is an incredibly dynamic system, and and crises of overcapacity, falling prices, cutthroat competition are nothing new. They've existed since since the beginning of of the capitalist system. It's a, it's a sort of in some sense a fundamentally irrational system. It depends on a lot of coordinated decisions among a lot of different producers, and yet there's no central authority that can ensure those decisions are made in harmony. And so something that you see constantly is you have overinvestment in one area and falling prices and producers can't recoup their costs. Or, you know, a very central dynamic in a lot of the history of the Industrial Revolution is a big development in one sector of the economy that, for instance, there are suppliers of some input can't keep pace with and you and you get some kind of crisis there. Or you get, you know, you run the, obviously production runs ahead of demand. But these are typically lead to crises, they're obstacles that then get overcome. And the possibility of overcoming these barriers seems to somehow disappear in this Brenner story where you you just have this endless crisis that just kind of goes on forever. You have a neat little story from a French writer, I believe, um, about um, a deflationary crisis that somehow gets turned around. Uh, okay. Tell that story. It's a beautiful story from, from Michelet, Jules Michelet's um, uh, book, The People. He was writing in the 1850s. So right around the time he was writing about it, he describes how uh, – there was a uh, yeah, here it is. Let me let me read this because I really I really enjoy his language here. He says uh, the cotton mills were at the last gasp, choking to death. This is 1842. The warehouses were stuffed and there were no sales. The terrified manufacturer dared neither work nor stop working with these devouring machines. Yet usury is not laid off. So he worked half time and the glut grew worse. Prices fell, but in vain. They went on falling until cotton cloth stood at six sous. So what's interesting is we've got all all the sort of elements here. We've got a crisis of overproduction. We've got a lack of demand. And we've got large fixed capital, those devouring machines that have to be financed. Usury is not laid off. You have debts. You have to keep paying the debts regardless. So it's better to produce at a loss than not to produce at all because you have to pay your, your interest costs regardless. So if you, if you read that sort of with a Brenner hat on, you think the only possible end of that story is, and eventually enough of them went bankrupt and enough machines were scrapped that uh, you know production got back in line with with demand, and you kind of went back to the way things were before. You know that's that's the only sort of outcome of this crisis that, that the Brenner story ever really allows for. But of course, that's not what happened in this case. So Michelet continues. Then something completely unexpected happened. The word six sous aroused the people. Millions of purchasers, poor people who had never bought anything, began to stir. The warehouses were emptied in a moment. The machines began to work furiously again. Chimneys began to smoke. It was a revolution in cleanliness and the embellishments of the homes of the poor. Underwear, bedding, table linen, and window curtains were now being used by whole classes who had not used them since the beginning of the world. I really like this. I mean, it just it struck me. I don't know when I read that book years ago, but it, it, I, I thought of it immediately when I was reading this Riley piece. And it struck me because it, it, it makes two things clear. One is the, the sort of capitalist process, this desperate search to cut prices, this desperate search to find new markets and, and to undercut the competition is not a zero-sum game. It's a creative process, and that's something Marx understood better than anything. It creates new possible markets. It creates new possible ways of producing stuff that, that people actually want and, and under certain circumstances will pay for, even if they haven't ever done so before. It's not, it's not just a process of competing for a fixed market share. And it's a process that's very destructive, that, that impoverishes many people, but over time also creates new use values, those, those beddings and table linens and window curtains and so on. Perhaps what someone like Brenner would say, oh, well, sure, in the 19th century, you know, but not today. But I don't think there's any reason to think that that sort of process is not true today. In fact, I think decarbonization actually gives us a really clear example of, in some ways, exactly the same dynamic Michelet was describing with, with textiles is playing out with, with electricity today. Let's talk some about the politics of, of all this. There's an argument from Riley and others that... Uh, a Green New Deal or something similar along those lines. The IRA is a weak realization of the Green New Deal. Would require or represent uh, too much complicity with the bourgeois state, and we should just say no. Um, what do you say to that? That's a stronger argument than the overcapacity one. I think I think one does have to be careful, and I think one has to be careful in particular by the extent to which 
some of the language around industrial policy is really focused on the idea of China as this threat or rival to the United States. To the extent that the whole uh, notion of reshoring or onshoring or friendshoring, you know, of shortening supply lines and all that stuff is, is supply chains is about um, reducing U.S. dependence on China because we don't trust China. We, we see China as, as a danger and enemy. That's bad. And I think I think leftists should be very careful about not buying into that or giving any credence to that or giving any any sort of even implicit support to, to that particular argument. And I think, you know, I also think, and this maybe is something we could come back to, I think there's another problem. I think the overcapacity argument for why a Green New Deal or broader industrial policy can't work, I don't, I don't think it really makes sense. But there is the question of whether the U.S. state in its current form actually, you know, has the institutional capacity to, to carry out that kind of economic planning. That's a deeper problem. You know, the, there's a lot, as you, you know, you've written about many times, you know, there's been a real kind of hollowing out of, of the state. And the notion that you're going to just sort of institute wartime planning in, in the year 2023 is it, there's, there's real institutional obstacles to doing that. The notion that there's a danger that, you know, something that looks on paper, you know, to be like a very at least potentially positive extension of, of public authority and public decision-making in the economy could end up fizzling out or just being, a, you know, as, as, as Brenner and Riley would, would say, it has to be. I would say it could be, you know, a set of just handouts to politically connected firms that doesn't really produce much. I think there's a danger of that. I don't think it's an inevitability. Well, the CHIPS app certainly does some of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's. I think there's a real, real problem there. On the other hand, you know, like I was saying with with energy, I think we do have some positive examples here. I mean, I was just to me, it's it's really rather strange that one would make this argument in the context of the Green New Deal and decarbonization, because in many ways those look like um, tremendous success stories for industrial policy. If you go back, let's say, twenty years to the early two thousands, new electricity in in the United States meant natural gas. That was it. That was what was built. That's it. Overwhelming majority of new capacity. Starting in the mid-2000s, we had this huge increase in wind power and more recently, huge increase in solar voltaic power to the point that this year, that's probably going to be the majority of new electricity capacity installed. And that's not the markets doing that. It's not Jason Furman's carbon tax. It's it's actually sort of targeted taxes and subsidies and also a lot of uh, public R&D spending, particularly on solar. This, to me, looks like a, a clear example that actually, you know, it is possible to, to use the, the, the existing U.S. federal government in a way to direct private investment in, in a fairly big way towards, towards meeting social needs, like around, around decarbonization. I think you really have to like, engage with, the, with this actual concrete success story before you make abstract arguments about why this, this sort of thing just can't be successful. Well, as you're engaging with the bourgeois state, you know, it's the only game in town right now. I mean, we're not about to nationalize the commanding heights of the economy as much as we would like to do that. Um, so do we have any choice? No, I don't think so. And I think, you know, again, I don't, you know, we don't want to beat up on, 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 you know, Brenner and Riley too much, but I think it's actually really striking when you read their stuff about their sort of ambivalent language they use, because at some places, you know, they'll, they'll describe, you know, a lot of what happened under COVID as being objectively pro-worker, as being something like the, the, the original New Deal, a great society in terms of the expansion of unemployment insurance and, and you know, the, so on. But then they'll also describe it as, as just being a form of looting, as a transfer to capital, as a um, escalating plunder in that, in that earlier New Left Review piece that Robert Brenner wrote about the COVID response. So I think there's a real, even on their side, a real ambivalence about not being ready to completely reject expansions of the existing bourgeois state. Because we, we saw very clearly under COVID that under certain circumstances, it's actually possible to, to redirect public resources and the sort of power of the public state in a way that is serving the immediate interests of working people. And also, and I think this is equally important, is legitimating a, a more conscious planning of the economy. You know, our friend uh, Seth Ackerman, who also has been, you know, in this debate, he wrote a very nice piece in Jacobin just pointing to the 10-hour day, which Marx was, of course, a very you know, eager advocate and, and enthusiastic uh, supporter of. Um, and he points out, you know, the issue there was not simply that, um, you know, obviously it's it's better not to work for 12 or 14 or 16 hours in a, in a, in a terrible factory and, and destroy your body doing that. But that's, you know, it's good not to have to do that quite so much. But it's also even more important that it establishes the principle that, that the working day is not just an objective fact that's established by market forces, but it is something that we collectively can decide on. Stephanie Luce, um, who did a lot of work on, on living wages um, back in the day, um, she always said the same thing. If you look at the um, uh, number of people affected by living wage laws, it's quite small. So what are we really doing here? But the important thing 
is that it's establishing the principle that wages are not just objective. They don't just reflect your human capital. They're not just market outcome that can't be improved on. They're, they're something that we collectively can decide what is reasonable, that they shift this, this outcome from the box of you know, just natural market facts to political, moral facts. There's an argument, I think a strong argument, that a lot of what we saw under COVID and, and, and a lot of what we're seeing around industrial policy beyond the sort of immediate direct benefits, which, which are important, is, is also legitimating this broader principle that we collectively are going to decide how we organize production. Well, it's striking how the bourgeoisie really wants to draw lines in this stuff. These are emergency provisions that have to expire. I think they must be very afraid that they could be uh, quite popular. Yeah, that's right. There's been a kind of frantic effort to draw a line around what was done under the pandemic and, and say that was, you know, a one-off. It doesn't have any implications for what we might do in the future. And unfortunately, they, they've had some successes there. Um, I think, you know, we, we know that on the Democratic side, there was much more optimism than was than was warranted that once you introduce some benefit temporarily, um, it's going to become permanent because people won't stand for having it taken away. Well, it turns out they, they will. At least they have so far. So, you're absolutely right that, that this stuff is is threatening precisely because it it does establish a principle that that we don't we can we can collectively decide on you know how work is organized and so on uh, and that's that's very very threatening to the people who benefit from the world being the way it is there is no alternative is their best argument I'm speaking with the economist Josh Mason Daniela Gabor has uh, famously drawn this spectrum ranging from de-risking to the big green state. Could, uh, could you describe that and also uh, evaluate how the IRA fits in? I think it's a very useful um, framework because I think the, the, the danger here to some extent is that the financing side and obviously the sort of economic and even maybe even more political and intellectual heights of our society are occupied by finance. You know, the, the, the people who sort of whose perspective is most reflected in in the news, in in, in um, politics, come from from. Fine. I mean, even on the left, you know, how many people do you know who have a background on Wall Street or talk to people from Wall Street? And I'm not talking about you; I'm talking about all of us. Versus, you know, how much contact, social contact, other contact do we have with people who work in manufacturing? It's just finance is is really there. So, you know, there's a danger that that becomes an excuse or a basis for focusing the subsidies on on financing. So the notion is, you know, if you want to support let's say, you know, wind power. Do you give a subsidy to wind power directly or even, you know, have the federal government spend money on, you know, R&D or installing windmills? Or do you say we're going to give a subsidy or a guarantee to somebody who owns a bond issued by a wind turbine or anybody who owns a green bond by some criteria? Do you, do you guarantee the profits of finance or do you directly subsidize the activity? And, you know, the, the mainstream view is, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just a technical detail, because if you make the financing cheaper, then that's just the benefits are just going to flow through to the ultimate, you know, whatever, whatever thing that's, that's borrowing the money. But there's a lot of reasons to think that isn't true. And in a lot of cases offering, you know, the, the, the problem, the constraint is not the terms you can borrow money on. And trying to focus your, your, your public interventions there ends up just being a windfall for owners of financial assets. I think, I think Daniela Gabor is, is right to draw that, that line and point to that risk. And I think especially in a developing context where, you know, there's this sort of emerging consensus, you know, she, I think she calls it the Wall Street consensus is her phrase, where the, the big problem is you have to make investments in developing countries more attractive to, to markets. You have to offer guarantees to somebody who buys a, you know, a bond from a, from a poor country, which I think is almost never a good use of the limited resources that, that, that the governments of those countries have. And whatever problem it is solving will be much better and more directly solved by, by limiting financial transactions across the border by capital control. So on all that, I think she's, she's making a very important point that there's a real difference between subsidizing or supporting an activity and, and supporting the people who own assets linked to that activity. To me, you know, there's a danger that you, well, let's not say a danger, but there's, even if you have the, you, you have to decide where in that range do you, do you draw the line. And if you, if you are de-risking investment in some concrete thing, if you're saying, you know, if you open a, if you, if you build a new transmission line, we'll guarantee you a certain amount of revenue from that, which is, is kind of the way electricity markets work anyway. But is that is that de-risking? Is something that we should we should avoid, or is that does that fall on the big green state side of the line? And I, I don't think it's obvious where where you do draw that line. We've talked about this some, but let's uh, draw it out more explicitly. Markets are pretty good at uh, managing ordinary change, making sure the supermarket shelves are filled with detergents and, and snacks. They're not so good at manager, managing great 
transitions like decarbonization or, or a war economy. What do we do about that? I think that's absolutely right. And I think in some ways it's, it's the crux of the issue. The issue here is not, you know, it's not the problem. The fundamental problem we have to overcome is not scarcity of real resources, which is what the mainstream would say. You know, the mainstream says to decarbonize, you're just going to have to, everybody's going to have to consume less. We can only make so much stuff. If we're making windmills. We're not, you know, making, making uh, food for people to eat. You know, it's just one or the other. Real resource constraint. The sort of Brenner argument is it's demand. If you make more windmills, there's only so much demand. Somebody else is just going to have their businesses go bust. It's not, I don't think, either of those. The constraint is a problem of coordination, that, that you have to do a lot of things at once. They all have to happen in sync. And, and markets, as you say, are okay with that when we're talking about little changes at the margin. But they really break down if you're talking about large, rapid changes. It's very hard to get, you know... The, the, the new electricity generation and the new transmission lines and the new capacity to build electric cars and the lithium for the batteries and the charging stations, all of these things. And, of course, the incomes that all these that these cars and will ultimately be bought out of to have all these things kind of moving together in sync. Markets just don't don't do that job very well. Um, you know, the whole premise of, of looking at market signals is the assumption that everybody else's behavior is going to stay the same while you adjust yours on the basis of prices. And rapid transitions, whether it's decarbonization or war mobilization or industrialization, are precisely based on, on that not happening. Historically, we know that countries where you have to go through rapid periods of economic change depend more on some form of planning, whether it's by the state or sometimes by a few big banks. You know, this is a famous argument by... Um, Alexander Gershenkron um, on, on late industrialization, economic backwardness and historical perspectives, I think is the title of the essay, um, where he says, you know, the early industrializing countries, Britain above all, could do it on the basis of, of decentralized decision making by private businesses. And, but the later you got, the harder, the more you had to overcome, obviously, the incumbent countries and the larger the sort of scale of industry that you needed, the more central direction you needed. And that was that was just a historical fact. You can see it if you read, you know, accounts of Asian industrialization, you know, in Japan, Korea, look at Alice Amson, who talks so much about the importance of getting prices wrong. Markets are not a good signal for that. If we look at how the U.S. mobilized during World War II, we were essentially a planned economy. And today, you know, we're facing the same. So you, the bigger the change, the faster the change, the more planning you need. And that's, there's, there's really no, no way around that. But then you obviously have to have the institutions that are actually capable of carrying out that kind of planning. And that, that again, as I, as I mentioned before, I think is really the biggest obstacle to something like a Green New Deal uh, for the U.S. today. Uh, do other countries have this? Or are we like, uniquely bad or what? Well, I mean, I, I'm hardly an expert on China, but certainly from, from, from over here, it sure looks like they're, they're better situated. Um, I think, you know, historically, I think Japan, Korea, you know, at, at least at one point were very, very positive models. France at one point, you know, was used um, credit policy. There's a, there's a great book by um, Eric Monet um, about this, you know, the extent to which you really had during the post-war period, very active credit policy of directing lending to specific sectors, specific industries, even specific companies in the service of a larger economic development plan, much more there than, than, than here during that period. And so I think, I think historically, certainly other countries, it's, it's hard to say, certainly France, it's, it would be a big <laughs> reverse from where they are now to embrace that kind of central planning again. But I think it seems to me that certainly the U.S. is probably weaker in that respect than, um, than a lot of the other, other advanced countries. But, you know, it, the trick, the important thing, and I think this with all this stuff, is, is you've got to look at these things as a problem to be overcome and not as, a, as a, just a reason why we have to, we just can't do it. That to me, maybe on a certain emotional level, was my biggest uh, objection to the tone of, of the sort of Riley argument is the kind of, well, unless you can do everything at once, forget about it. You know, these, these are obstacles, they're barriers, but they're challenges to overcome, not absolute limits. Well, not to be too cynical, but uh, you know that kind of argument uh, just sort of relieves you from any political responsibility. Well, you know everything has to be done, and we can't do everything. So, what are we going to do? Just write articles, right? It's not. It's not the, the. It's not something you would write if you were part of an active political movement, or even just sort of imaginatively were part of one. Uh, I was stunned to see Trump tell. I think it was Tucker Carlson the other day that. China, they have top people. We don't have top people here. <laughs> and I don't know where Trump classifies himself in that uh, taxonomy, but uh, you know, he's got a point there. 
Right. There's a certain, you know, the China the China rivalry thing is deeply worrisome, but it also there's 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 potentially a positive side if if you have certain people in the American elite looking at China and, and perhaps even more so in other parts of the world and saying we can do what they do. You know, I, I find as an economics teacher, it's it's great to have China out there as an example of well, you don't need foreign investment. You don't need, you know, to liberalize your financial markets. You don't need to do all this stuff because we can we can point to this example. So if I think there is a sense in which maybe, you know, the U.S. and certainly other parts of the world can look at China as, as an alternative model and, and that in, in one where a big active public sector and much more management of the economy and, of course, in particular management of finance is acceptable and, and maybe even offer some specific models for how to do that. And finally, you know, giving a, well, a nod to my guest last week, but, you know, other people as well, uh, the degrowthers would not be necessarily pleased with your analysis. Uh, what's your response to them? Yeah, I have that um, on my on my list of topics here uh, that I wrote in advance too. Um, I think this is a tough one. There, there are a lot of you know good people in that in that world, and I think there's there's certainly things where you can say there are hard constraints, and maybe maybe we don't know, but maybe you just can't have air travel on the scale that we 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 have it today. Maybe that's just not something you can decarbonize. But I, I think. There's a danger there of, of sort of naturalizing the capitalist economy uh, a bit. You know, the, the source, the, the search for profit doesn't necessarily involve any particular concrete real resources in the world. It just involves spending money in the hopes that somebody else will give you money. And that that could be for, you know, really for anything. And so I don't think the notion that, that somehow the self-expansion of capital as a quantity of money necessarily always requires this this constant increase in, in the throughput of physical resources so that there's no way of um, halting our, or slowing our, our use of carbon except by, you know, halting the whole process of capitalist growth and accumulation. Th- that's in some ways taking capital at, at face value a little bit. It's 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 not kind of accepting their conception of the world where, where they are just sort of reflections of the actual physical resources available to society. I think that it's it's a little bit of a wrong turn. And I think, again, it's it's really contradicted by the experience of, of the past, you know, decades where we've actually seen a huge growth, in, particularly in electricity generation, but in other areas of, of a huge shift in activity. Um, I think there's another issue there, which I think is very important, which is politically, if you tell people, well, you know, the only way to save the planet is for us all to just accept the lower standard of living. You're going to have to, you know, work harder and, and eat less enjoyable food and, and not have the comforts that you have today. And, um, you know, if you're already poor or unemployed or struggling to meet your needs, well, guess what? You're just going to have to tighten your belt some more because this is important. I, I think that's just politically hopeless. I think there's, you can't get anywhere with that program. And I think we've seen it very clearly. You know, this is why the carbon tax is, is such a political non-starter. You know, you, you have to find a way of framing the problem of decarbonization as, as a way that's going to – something that's going to improve people's lives, material, concrete – conditions of existence, you know, not just in the future for our grandchildren, but right now. And I think that's been the real strength of the Green New Deal program is that it that it offers it. I think I think compellingly, I think the Green New Deal program is it is a logically correct thing to argue that in fact rapid decarbonization, if it's if it's has the appropriate coordinating institutions to make it happen in a coherent way, will actually be experienced as an economic boom. And I think in some ways this is again the degrowth program is actually pointing us in the wrong direction if we want to look at the real obstacles. Because the problem is not, you know, we all have to just live with less and accept, you know, an end to rapid growth. The problem is actually, I think that rapid decarbonization is going to mean more rapid growth and rising living standards for most people. And that is something that politically our system is not well equipped to handle. We've had a generation plus of managing distributional conflicts through unemployment, and, and telling people, you know, there is no alternative. There's, you just have to suck it up. That's been how, you know, we've, we've maintained, you know, labor discipline. We've maintained sort of the, the acceptance of a skewed distribution of income. And we've avoided sort of acute distributional conflicts. And if we actually have a sustained boom, if we have a sustained period of full employment, and if we have, you know, rising living standards for people, I think politically it's going to be very challenging for the, the, the system in the U.S. And, and other places to deal with that. And so the problem, you know, we need to be thinking about is not – how do we get people to accept a lower standard of living? But how do we get the bosses to accept a rising standard of living for most people? And how do we manage the distributional conflicts? You know, how do we, what kind of labor institutions do we, do we need for that? Can we imagine a revival of the union movement or do we need something else, some other framework that's going to allow negotiation over wages, wage boards or sectoral bargaining? Do we need 
to be talking about, you know, forms of co-determination, ways of giving people more power in the workplace that don't create, you know, acute conflicts over the distribution of income that don't have the potential to lead to inflation. The problems that we're actually going to face are sort of the opposite of the ones that the the degrowth people are are identifying. And so in that sense, um, although I have a lot of respect for a lot of people in that sort of world, I I think in some ways it's, it's kind of a misleading framework to be thinking about decarbonization through. That was Josh Mason, who writes under the byline J.W. Mason, a professor of economics at John Jay College of the City University of New York. A plug here. If you're interested in studying economics from the left, you could do no better than John Jay's M.A. program. First-rate education at bargain prices. Applications for the fall are now open. For more, visit John Jay Economics, all one word, johnjeconomics.org. Here are Trump's comments about the excellence of Chinese leadership that I mentioned to Josh during the interview. How smart is he, could you tell? Top of the line. Top of the line. Yeah, they're all top of the line. Our guy's not top of the line. Never was. These are top of the line people at the top of their game. President Xi is a brilliant man. If you went all over Hollywood to look for somebody to play the role of President Xi, you couldn't find it. There's nobody like that. The look, the brain, the whole thing. We had a great relationship. You know, when he first came to Mar-a-Lago, he came... The first day, there for a few days, it was so organized by them and by us, but by them. Very boom, boom, boom. Everything's like business, no games, you know. They don't say, gee, how did the Yankees do last night? Oh, that was a wonderful, they don't care. They don't care about anything. I said, do you ever go to a Broadway play? I'll take you to one. Do you ever have plays like, do you ever go, no, I don't, uh, no. This is business. These aren't game players, right? I like it. You know, in a way, I like it. You have no life, but that's what he likes. Yeah. Top of the line smart. Top of the line. That was Donald Trump speaking to Tucker Carlson last week. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Pierre Boulez's sonatine performed by Claire Chase on flute and Jacob Greenberg on piano. Why isn't the EPA enforcing the Clean Water Act? My next guest is trying to get them to do so. Jen Duggan is the deputy director of the Environmental Integrity Project, a nonprofit devoted to the enforcement of our environmental laws, which, as you'll hear, often go unenforced. The project is part of a coalition of 13 environmental groups who are suing the EPA to get them to enforce provisions of the Clean Water Act to stop oil refineries and chemical plants from dumping poisons into our waters. Jen Duggan. What is the substance of the lawsuit? What's it about? So many people don't know that big industrial plants like oil refineries, chemical and plastic plants, and facilities that manufacture fertilizer, pesticides, and non-ferrous metals like aluminum are not required to use modern wastewater treatment controls to limit the amount of pollution that they pour into our waterways. These plants are some of the dirtiest industries in the US. They dump billions of gallons of wastewater into our waterways each year that contains nitrogen that fuels algae blooms, as well as toxics that are harmful to humans or aquatic life like benzene and selenium. But the water pollution standards have not been updated in 30, sometimes nearly 40 years. And in fact, EPA has not set limits at all for some of the pollutants, despite a requirement to do so decades ago. And that's just not allowed under the Clean Water Act. I presume that technology has improved over these three or four decades to the point where we could have a lot cleaner effluent than we do now. 
That's right. There are commonly available pollution control technologies to clean up nitrogen, to help us reduce heavy metals like selenium, and also things like toxic forever chemicals, PFAS. What are those? Those are per and polyfluoroalkyl substances that are called forever chemicals. They're found in lots of different industrial processes, um, as well as many household goods. By forever, I presume that means they don't degrade on a very um, friendly schedule. That's correct. They are made to um, stay forever, um, and they do not break down um, in the environment. What does the law say, and what are they doing or not doing? So we have a really good law on the books. The Clean Water Act sets out a framework for reducing industrial pollution so that our waterways are fishable and swimmable and safe and healthy for humans and aquatic life. And under this law, EPA is required to set pollution limits based on the best available technology. And then they have to go back and revise those limits at least once every five years, where data shows that treatment technology has improved. But EPA has failed to comply with this really important part of the Clean Water Act for decades. And the result is that more pollution from big industries like oil and petrochemical plants pour into our waterways than should be allowed. And this has been a history of bipartisan neglect, I presume, given uh, the timescale? That's correct. So these industries have not been updated since the 1980s and 19, early 1990s. Why not? <laughs> Is it just the EPA not paying attention? Is it overworked? Are they uh, um, captured by the industries they're supposed to regulate? What's going on? I think that's a really great question for EPA. EPA has often pointed to a lack of resources, but the law doesn't excuse compliance due to lack of resources. A company can't just say it's too expensive to comply when they break the law. We wouldn't accept that from a private company and we shouldn't accept it from EPA. And EPA could do their job much more efficiently by leveraging the existing data they have and putting in place pollution standards that apply across industries. Uh, now, what kind of industries are we talking about? And what kind of uh, stuff do they pump out? So the lawsuit targets seven big industrial sources of pollution, oil refineries, inorganic chemical plants, and organic chemical and plastic plants, as well as facilities that manufacture fertilizer, pesticides, and non-ferrous metals like aluminum. And where are they located? I looked at the, the table in your report, and uh, it seemed an awful lot uh, in Louisiana and Texas, but that's not all, right? That's correct. There's more than, EPA estimates that within these categories, there's more than 1,100 of these facilities spread out across the U.S. So this is a national problem. There are certainly areas where um, there are clusters or concentrations of these facilities like in the Gulf, but these are scattered from coast to coast. And many of these facilities are located in low-income communities or communities of color who are already bearing a disproportionate burden of industrial pollution. And where are they dumping this stuff? Rivers? What is, what is their preferred uh, dumping ground? That's a great question. So industrial facilities are usually located along rivers or, or lakes um, or the coast. So depending upon where they're located, it may be the Gulf of Mexico, it might be San Francisco Bay, or it could be the Ohio River, or Lake Michigan. Now, do EPA standards cover all the stuff they're exuding, um, or is the law not caught up with whatever it is they're dumping? They don't, and that's one of the big problems, is that these old standards don't actually set limits for the kinds of pollutants that these facilities discharge. So, for example, oil refineries, the current limits don't include selenium, benzene, nickel, cyanide, lead, mercury, chlorides, um, and many other contaminants that, that EPA has identified as present in refinery discharges. So there are two problems with these outdated standards. They don't cover all of the pollutants, and the limits are also too high because they are based on technology from the 1980s. And we have better treatment controls today, for example, Denitrification is a well-established technology that removes nitrate and nitrate from wastewater. It's already required for municipal sewage plants across the country. And if refineries installed it, and they could reduce their nitrogen discharges by about 50 to 75%. It's not just oil refineries, right? Coal is another uh, offender. 
this lawsuit uh, is really focused on the oil and petrochemical industries. EPA has actually recently put out a proposed rule to update the discharge standards for coal-fired power plants. This particular lawsuit is targeting plastics and chemical manufacturing, as well as inorganic chemicals and fertilizer, pesticide, and non-ferrous metals manufacturing. There was a a Supreme Court decision, I believe, that uh, limited the EPA's power to use the Clean Air Act uh, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, right? That's right. But this is actually focused under the Clean Water Act. And the law is actually very clear with respect to the Clean Water Act. They are required to set limits for all pollutants and all waste streams and then revise those limits at least once every five years when data shows that technologies have improved. This lawsuit is asking EPA to do what they have been required to do for decades, and that's to require that these big industrial sources of pollution use modern wastewater treatment controls. And is there anything citizens can do other than just wait for the outcome of the lawsuits? For folks that are concerned about water pollution from these facilities, they can contact their elected representatives. They can participate in the proceedings for plants that are near them. There is lots of good information online about the location of these plants and how to participate in decisions that might impact their community related to water pollution. So we have the information, it's just that we're not doing much about it. That's right. We have, the good news here really is that we have the available technologies to clean up this pollution and the law requires EPA to do that. And we're asking EPA to do what it's been required to do for the last half century. And that is to make sure that these big polluters use modern wastewater treatment controls. That was Jen Duggan, Deputy Director of the Environmental Integrity Project. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the most famous song about Boston by a band not from Boston, they're from L.A., Dirty Water by the Standells. It was released in late 1965, seven years before the passage of the Clean Water Act. Till next week, bye. I'm going to tell you a story. 